You know, for centuries, the ultra-wealthy have been putting their money where their mouths are by investing in fine wine. And now, with Vint, you can do that too. At Vint, we offer SEC-qualified investment opportunities of fine wine and spirits curated by our experts with portfolio managers. With Vint, you can invest and diversify into the most sought-after assets that have a history of price appreciation. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today's guest is Fred Teal, the CEO of Marathon Digital Holdings. Uh, Fred is leading a public company that had been valued at $8 billion at their peak with 16 employees, today valued at around $750 million, which is astonishing. Uh, previously, he led a project company called Sprocket that was building a exchange uh, for cryptocurrency that they incorporated in Liechtenstein. Um, he went there and established this business and then the laws changed and he tells the story of how he went from that experience to now leading Marathon, which is one of the largest Bitcoin mining uh, companies out there, one of 14 publicly traded uh, crypto mining companies. We talked about his specific strategy at Marathon and how it stacks up to other strategies in the Bitcoin mining space. We talked about how public companies shift and change, buy and sell over time. Marathon was uh, had many different lives as a publicly traded company prior to what it does now. And we talked about the, that evolution. Uh, a lot of the conversation, we talked about energy markets, uh, nuclear, uh, the role of uh, uh, renewables, uh, how Germany has changed their strategy, how the U.S. is looking at Germany with respect to the change in their nuclear strategy, taking down the nuclear power plants they have, uh, how nuclear plays into the future of energy production, and also in j- just understanding the nuances of the different types of energy classes and how the grid operates on a prioritization of stability and how different energy classes or energy types play into that stability. Uh, Fred really has become an expert in energy, as one would when they're leaning a Bitcoin mining company. So very much enjoyed the conversation, learned a lot, and I hope you do as well. Here's Fred Teal. All right. Well, just like that, Fred, we're live recording, and I'm excited to chat with you. Uh, I, I was digesting all the different projects and companies that you've been involved in, and I thought it'd be appropriate to just start with where you are now uh, with Marathon Digital Holdings, which has been public for a while and now is focusing on Bitcoin or at least crypto mining. Um, what was it that got you excited about this? And and maybe walk me through a little bit of the, the restructuring of the company to focus on mining and where things generally are today. Sure. So um, in kind of reverse order, uh, you know, Marathon uh, used to be called Marathon Patent Group, and before that, it had other names. Like many public companies, they go through a life and then they kind of go idle, and somebody takes it over and does something else with it, repurposes the entity. 
Marathon was originally started as actually a mineral mining business, extracting vanadium as a metal, and then was in the oil and gas business for a while. It was in the real estate business for a while. Um, And then it became a patent troll, effectively, Marathon Patent Group, and acquired a bunch of patents, um, one of which, interestingly enough, is related to uh, the functionality of Siri and Alexa. And um, so Marathon had some success in prosecuting some patents. Um, But then in in kind of going after some of the bigger targets, uh, you know, they burned through a lot of money. And eventually the shell kind of was uh, idle and a group took over the company and decided to repurpose it for crypto mining. And a a good friend of mine, um, the former CEO, Mariko Komodo, was brought in to kind of head the business in 2017. And I joined the board in 2018 as part of kind of a restructuring of the company and um, uh, then stepped into the CEO role in uh, April, late April of last year. But I got involved in crypto um, uh, through a, a former colleague of mine who kind of uh, went down the rabbit hole uh, many, many years ago, very early in the crypto, uh, in the Bitcoin days, and sort of had followed his kind of adventures down the space. And uh, you know, by way of background, I come from a family that was very involved in the banking industry. My dad was a banker. My stepmother was a senior economist at the OECD. And so very familiar with kind of banking regulation. And I had run fintech companies before and done a lot of, had to do a lot of work uh, relative to technology and financial regulation and really viewed Bitcoin and crypto as a way to facilitate uh, international payments and as a great asset class that took you out of this mode of having to be operate within these highly regulated financial markets and uh, allow international trade to operate much more freely. And um, started really studying the space, looked at um, starting a company in the space and uh, wrote a white paper uh, for a company that would essentially be an exchange that sat on top of all the other exchanges such that you could have a unified order book you could um, trade across markets, times of day out of one wallet. Uh, because if you think of back five or six years ago, it was really hard to move money into a crypto wallet. Um, you know, the banks made it very difficult for you. The exchanges couldn't take ACH or wire transfers typically. And then more importantly, if you wanted to trade in New York and there was a 10% price difference in Tokyo, how did you get money to Tokyo? And, you know, Alameda Research and Sam Bankman-Fried's kind of first company made a lot of money doing that, trading that arbitrage between international markets. And so the goal with the the company that the white paper I'd written was, you know, build a company that could essentially eliminate that uh, friction and um, make it very easy to take advantage of those arbitrage opportunities. Um, Tried getting it licensed in the U.S. and very quickly realized that was never going to happen. Went to Switzerland um, had extensive discussions with the Swiss authorities on it and ended up building it actually in Liechtenstein, where uh, the law firm that we used had helped craft the original crypto laws in that country um, and built that, operated it for a while. And then they changed the laws in Liechtenstein, which essentially would have required the business to be licensed as a bank. And at that point, um, the capital requirements and the legal requirements were just too onerous. And so, uh, wow. and that was Sprocket? We got out of that business. That was Sprocket, correct. Yeah. Mm. Wow. And That's up until that point, story. How, how much time or how, how much capital had been deployed into that project? Um, you know, it was a lot of time, um, but not a huge amount of capital because, you know, having been in the startup space for a lot of years and then 
you know, general partner in a venture firm, uh, you know, you want to keep kind of startups starved a little bit um, until you can really validate the use case. And, um, you know, the, the focus initially was really licensing. And once you had the license, then it was a question of operating. And uh, what we quickly realized was that the kind of, you look at between the, the full building out the full tech stack and getting the full licensing done with the banking license and all that was just it was going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars and just wow. no sense at that point yeah i mean you you need a basic capitalization of uh at the time it was 120 million dollars or swiss francs uh Liechtenstein uses swiss francs as a currency um just to be able to operate and then on top of it you have to have a lot of people you have to have a lot of processes because you have to have a banking license so and it takes years to get and so when you look at kind of the speed at which the market was moving and what was going on, it just, it, you know, the, as a venture capitalist, it was like, you know, I don't want to take this risk. Mm. Um, but uh, needless to say, uh, did, you know, did it you, was a great experience. Did you move to Liechtenstein to do this or did you have to move if you were to do it? Uh, no, I spent a lot of time going back and forth. Now, by background, you know, I was born in France, and my parents are both Swedish, so I spent a lot of time uh, of my life living in Europe. And so uh, I sort of commuted back and forth on a pretty frequent basis. Um, it, was that a difficult experience, like emotionally, to have the effectively the rug pulled out from under you when they made the regulatory change after you had already sort of set some roots in Liechtenstein? Yeah, it's it's always difficult, right? I mean, emotionally, you, you're vested emotionally in any project you're doing, and you're excited about doing it. And then all of a sudden, it kind of, you know, something happens that, uh, you know, makes it not work. It's kind of like imagine if, you know, with Marathon, if the government were to suddenly prohibit Bitcoin mining, it's like, oh, you know, not a lot you can do other than try and move it offshore. Um, but the life of an entrepreneur is constantly dealing with risk of failure and the emotional ash issues related to that. And, um, you know, you learn from all your lessons and it kind of becomes another knowledge set that you add to your kind of quiver of, of, uh, facts and experiences that you then use, uh, for your next venture. You know, there's this old saying to have good judgment, you have to have experience and to have experience, you've had to have had bad judgment. Yeah. You learn from your mistakes, right? So, yeah, yeah. You know, there's, a, there's another good saying that's, uh, uh, a fool, uh, doesn't learn from his mistakes, uh, a, a, a wise person learns from his mistakes and a genius learns from the mistakes of others, which mm -hmm. hopefully, uh, is, is something I try to think about. D did, um, I was going to ask you, ask you another question on the sprocket. Oh, uh, the specific regulatory implement implementation that was forcing you to become a bank, was it holding customer funds abroad or what was it that was core to the business model that you just couldn't get away with doing without becoming a bank? So the, the original crypto law that was um, put in place in Liechtenstein essentially treated Bitcoin and Ethereum as currencies. So you could trade them as currencies. So you only needed a foreign exchange bureau license. That's what made it feasible to operate the business. And so essentially what you're doing there is you're um, you know, buying on one side of the market and then selling on the other side. And um, you operate it like an OTC desk, essentially. And it was taking it from that step to a full-blown automated exchange and market maker that would require you to then go into the banking space. 
and uh, essentially have a banking license. And then they shifted the kind of um, how they viewed anybody trading crypto as saying, okay, now if you're going to trade crypto, then you now need to have a banking license. And that's what kind of put the nail in the coffin. Mm. And was it custody specifically as a company, if you're controlling customer funds, that would make you eligible? So uh, a couple of things, you know, in an OTC model, uh, essentially customer wires you money, you do a purchase, and then you send the, the coins effectively and vice versa on the other side of it. Um, so you're never holding customer funds. So again, you know, to become the automated market maker and exchange, we were going to have to custody funds. We were going to have to hold deposits. And uh, while you can hold deposits for a limited period under the license we had, you know, we could hold customer funds for 90 days. You can't essentially, you know, have an open account where they just, the funds sit there um, and people are actively traded. So, yeah, again, it's all kind of, you know, early days in the industry. Mm. Um, you're out there ahead of regulation. And, you know, it was like in the U.S. when we looked at doing this. In the U.S. originally, it was, uh, you know, you're going to have to get money transfer, you know, money uh, transfer licenses. You're going to have to get all these other licenses. And, you know, in a regulatory uh, sort of high-risk regulatory environment, uh, you know, you are taking a very big risk when you're trying to do something uh, and dealing with the regulators that haven't yet created rules. It's different if the rules exist and you're trying to get kind of, you know, whether no action letters or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's always a, a bit of a challenge in that regard. But, you know, that's the thing with the financial markets. And, um, you know, regulation is a game of whack-a-mole. You know, new technology comes out. Oh, we need to regulate this. What are we going to do? And it takes time. You know, just look at the crypto market in the U.S. today. Look at how far behind the U.S. is compared to some other countries in the regulatory frameworks that we have here. Um, and it'll eventually get all sorted out. But it's just it takes time and the companies that kind of are on the wrong side of the regulators, you know, get penalized for it. And I think, you know, this washout we've seen with the, you know, the sorry, crypto winter we're going through right now has actually been, you know, unfortunate for investors uh, and the people who traded on, on some of these platforms that were impacted. But it's very healthy for the industry overall because it washes out this kind of, um, you know, success at all cost. And, you know, hunt for yield that existed for a while in this marketplace. And that you take that speculation out of the marketplace, it deflates the market uh, initially. But what it does is it creates a market that's much safer afterwards, because now the regulators know what can go wrong, and they know how to build regulation frameworks that will function around it, that'll make the market safe. And at that point, the real institutions can come in and, and actively get involved in the market. So, um, while it was a very bad thing for the investors who lost money and, you know, the employees of companies that have lost their jobs and all that, um, like any evolutionary marketplace, uh, you know, when you start with revolution, it then shifts to evolution. And as it evolves, it gets better. And, you know, you got to realize that the equity trading markets are hundreds of years old, but most of the regulation around equities trading have only happened in the last hundred years. Uh, you know, really since the Great Depression. And so, uh, you know, the crypto market's still very early. It's, you know, 13, 14 years old, um, based on the age of Bitcoin. And we've got some ways to go. But I think it'll be much healthier coming out of this. Uh, so over the next five years, I think we'll see a lot of good progress. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's specifically healthier when the government regulations come in to 
like make things safer to effectively try to outlaw some of the pyramid scheme projects that were going on. Or by contrast, I wonder if the retail market is just more sophisticated now and understanding the, um, you know, the, the effect of these organizations that when they manage people's money, well, you have to now be a detailed, thorough investor to look at, well, how do they manage money? Where is it sitting? Whereas you kind of don't have to think about that in the traditional fintech market because you kind of have an assumption that maybe the banks are underlying all of the, you know, uh, the GUI interfaces like Venmo, like ultimately there's some bank that holds custody over your money and that's probably FDIC insured. Whereas in the crypto world, clearly things can go wrong. I, I'm wondering if if there weren't regulations that were reactionary in this today, today, you know, as we sit here in July, a month after everything just kind of shook down, would do you think things would just kind of naturally evolve to become more sophisticated and prevent that sort of thing from happening again? Or is it really going to take regulation to protect people? Yeah, it's so I think a way to look at it is anything new has a lot of excitement around it. And there's this, uh, there's a technology analyst firm called Gartner, who for decades has been kind of giving companies the view on the implications of new technology. And they have a concept called the hype curve, which is this chart where you see this huge slope upwards. People are all excited about a new technology. And then they go into this thing called the trough of disillusionment, which is when you realize it might not work quite the way everybody thought. It's impractical. You know, Web 3.0 is starting to go through a bit of that now where people are saying, well, what's the real use for it? And how does it really differ itself from uh, Web 2.0? So crypto's now gone through that. We're now in that trough of disillusionment uh, in the depths of it. And when you come out of that, you come out into this phase where it's real commercial implementation and the, you know, the financial markets really take it on because now it's safe. There are guardrails. So regulation is important because um, institutional investors want to make sure that they're protected um, both from the government coming in and making a sudden change, um, but also from people doing things that they shouldn't do. So, for example, um, there is no amount of due diligence you can do reasonably to validate that somebody like a Celsius or, uh, you know, Three Arrows or somebody like that is doing everything as you expect they should be doing it with that level of prudence and, and you know, safety and, and risk averseness. Um, now I think most people, if you were to say, Hey, I've got an investment idea, it'll generate 18% annual yield. Most people with, who are reasonable would say, um, yeah, that's most probably a scam. Um, and you know, if you think about how a lot of these companies were generating yield, they were taking somebody's Bitcoin or somebody's ether, they were then staking that. And then they were being able to get a liquid version of that and then investing it somewhere else and getting some more. And they would make two or 3% on this kind of stack of yield that was happening. And, but that can only go on as long as the market is in a growth phase. So again, it takes somebody with uh, a lot of experience and uh, the ability to distance themselves from the excitement and hype to think about, you know, is this really reasonable what people are saying and doing and can it last? And I know, uh, for example, you know, a lot of um, companies approached Marathon because, you know, Marathon holds a lot of Bitcoin and um, said, God, you know, you guys should really invest 
take your Bitcoin, uh, give it to us, we'll generate a yield for you, it'll be great. And some of those companies that approached us are companies that no longer <laughs> are uh, uh, solvent. Ouch. And we didn't. You know, uh, we were very conservative. We said we don't want to have risk of, uh, uh, you know, counterparty risk. Um, now, I've lived through the 08 crisis. I lived through the dot-com bomb. Uh, so, you know, from that perspective, we're very conservative in how we manage our assets. Um, how does this compare? Just a quick question on that. Just the consensus view on the emotional reaction after the bomb. I, I wasn't, I was born in 87, so 13 around the turn of the century. Uh, I certainly remember the 08 cri- crisis, but it was much more directionally in real estate than in tech. How does this yeah. compare? I mean, this feels to me pretty bad because companies just collapse. It wasn't like, I yeah. mean, they collapse effectively due to fraud. I mean, the CEO of Celsius tried to flee the country. Mm. How do you, what's your sense of the aftermath in this situation? So, you know, um, from a tech industry perspective, this is like a combination of the 08 crisis, the Madoff <laughs> collapse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the, and the dot com bomb. Cause, you know, think about it. The last two years, uh, companies in this industry were able to raise capital at amazing amounts. I mean, Marathon raised a lot of money as well. Um, but companies had easy access to capital. And when there's easy access to capital, um, people get sloppy. And, um, you know, you kind of think that that access is not going to end. And they don't operate their businesses uh, very prudently. And then all of a sudden, you know, if you're competing against somebody and you're offering 10% yield and somebody else is offering 12%, it's like, okay, I've got to offer 14% now. And, you know, th- th- this competitive aspect uh, in the up market um, and their counterparties willing to do those business deals, you know, there were companies that were lending money to Celsius and others um, at rates that were very reasonable. And so they could, you know, literally pile on the money on these deals. So you- you've got this greed factor that kicks in. And, you know, not unlike GameStop, you know, look at all these retail traders who went in and ran the stock of a company that really had no reason being valued the way it was. Um, the greed factor kicks in. And, you know, while people think about the crypto market as, you know, it's this, you know, multi-trillion dollar market, you know, compared to the equity markets in the world, you know, the trading markets, it's still very small. And um, there, it doesn't take a lot of people to move uh, the numbers in the crypto world. Um, and so, you know, you saw this huge wave of people getting into it and everybody was seeing dollar signs and, you know, Bitcoin was doing nothing but going up. Ether was doing nothing but going up. All these other coins were going up and it was like you could buy into an altcoin and flip out of it within two or three weeks, make 100% on your money. It was easy money. People get sloppy and they get careless and they get greedy. And so I think, you know, it's this combination of companies raised a lot of capital. Now you've seen you know, it's very hard to raise capital for a crypto business today. That's not available. Interest rates have gone up. So debt's very expensive. Uh, you had people invested a lot of money in entities that were insolvent. So that's the 08 crisis, right? Where Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers disappeared. Um, and then you have, you know, actual crime uh, or fraud, if you would, by some individuals. Um, and, you know, it's this combination of the three. What is amazing, though, is to think about all of these things that have happened, the macroeconomic environment, you know, the Fed raising interest rates, we're entering, getting ready to enter into a pretty bad recession, most probably. Um, you have, you know, um, 
the equity markets, you know, dropping uh, by, you know, 30 to 50 percent. You know, the, I think the mean NASDAQ stock dropped 60 percent, most probably, while the NASDAQ overall hasn't dropped 60 percent. If you look at the, you know, the median stock mm-hmm. decline in the market, it's most probably 60 percent. Um, the crypto companies dropped um, a fair bit more than that. Um, so you have all this money that's been essentially lost and evaporated in the marketplace. And it's happened in a very short period of time. And, you know, people have, you know, I'm not going to say people have learned lessons, but I think uh, a lot of lessons have been taught. Hopefully people have <laughs> learned from them. And what you're going to see is a much healthier business going forward. Uh, you know, you're going to see people more prudently capitalize their business and not overcapitalize them. Uh, you're going to see people take risk that is more measured. Uh, you know, there are uh, companies in the mining space who went and raised money, used all that money to buy infrastructure and put a deposit on miners saying, I'll go back to market and raise more money to pay for these miners. And now they can't and they're in trouble. Um, you know, that was not the model we used uh, at all. When we built the business, we built it much more prudently. But I think, <clears throat> you know, it has to do with how experienced management teams are. You know, uh, how many times have you been around the block and do you know how to uh, properly diligence deals, diligence providers, things like that. So, uh, but you know, listen, we're all learning lessons every day. Yeah. Continually. I mean, I certainly learn lessons uh, on a daily basis um, still. Yeah. And I've been in the tech industry for gosh, 40 years at this point. Yeah. So. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management scams and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto. Software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability that a single private key can be lost hacked or simply just misplaced my new sponsor the zengo crypto wallet is a total game changer bringing wallet security to a whole new level you have to check out zengo an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability leveraging advanced cryptography called mpc which is just until now only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions so zengo most secure Web3 wallet is the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at Zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Zengo.com, code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of $200 or more. Yeah. Do, do you feel yourself get caught up in it? You know, it's, it's if we were to have this conversation four months ago, I, it, it just would we have the wisdom to recognize the inflated valuations and overzealous attitude that people have across the industry? Or we're like, hey, this is this is great. You rec- you recognize that things are going growing quickly. But there's also I find it just, it's very difficult in those moments to know how long it'll last. You know, it's, it's hard to make a conservative bet. Like let's, yeah. let's, let's get out of this deal, whatever it is and play a more conservative role. And then, you know, does it last another six months or a year or a couple of years? I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I think the, you know, the counterparty risk issue relative to the yield, the hunt for yield that was going on. I think that, uh, I know certainly I was very skeptical of it because it just it didn't pencil for me how you could do it. Um, and um, so I, I think if you were to go back a year ago, 
um, you know, we were all very caught up in, in, you know, the price of Bitcoin continuing to go up and, you know, where does it stop? Is it going to go to a hundred thousand? Is it going to go to $200,000? Are we going to have another crypto winter? And, um, you know, I think the general expectation was that, you know, the cycle would not be very similar to how it had been before, but there would be some similarities to it. So, mm-hmm. you know, at what point, you know, how far down would Bitcoin drop if it did drop? And, you know, we had a couple of drawdowns last year. And, um, uh, you know, if you look at kind of when we did our last capital raise last year, which was in November, we did a convertible bond offering that was most probably right at the peak of the market. Mm. Um, so it was, you know, uh, serendipitously well-timed, uh, not, you know, we didn't know it was the peak of the market, but we felt that, you know, gosh, market can't go much further than this. So now's the time to do this. Yeah. Well, um, good move. Yeah. Now, you know, at the same time, you know, we're a hodler. Most of our peers have gone and sold, you know, a lot of their Bitcoin holdings. Uh, you know, we haven't, we haven't sold any Bitcoin since 2020. So we're still long-term believers and, you know, uh, the markets are behaving nicely today. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Know, it's a nice update for us all, but we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. And, and, uh, help me paint the landscape a little bit of the public market mining companies. Like how, how many of them are, uh, how many of them are out there? How, what's, what's the sort of distribution of sizing and mining power? And, and what do you see as the, uh, competition? Is it purely on, who can acquire the most capital to buy the most machines or is it on the specificity of the type of energy usage that different miners have or are there other strategies that seem to be promising sure uh, great question so you know at this point i think there are 14 or 16 publicly traded miners mm-hmm. um at least in the u.s uh, you have some others that are traded in other international markets um and most miners have a business model where they invest in infrastructure. So they essentially uh, find an agreement to get power from a power provider. They then find a site. They you know uh, either lease land or they buy land, and then they build a facility, and then they go order miners to put in that facility. And you know that takes a lot of capital. Um, if you look at your typical installation, your data center, um, and you know once it's stocked with your miners about typically 60 to 70% of the CapEx in that are miners and the balance is infrastructure. Uh, Our model is very different. We believe in an asset light model. So we don't like to own the infrastructure at all. So it gives us a couple of benefits. One is we're agile, meaning because we're not dependent on one physical site where we're going to operate. As we grow, we can pick and choose wherever we want to operate. If regulation changes, if states have better rules, if power is more readily available at a lower cost in the location, we have the ability to kind of chase the best deal because we're not sitting on a lot of real estate or physical plant assets that we're developing. And all of our capital goes to just buying miners and operating. And that's why you compare us to like a riot, for example, or a core who have hundreds of employees and have physical sites that they're operating and managing and that they're having to you know, borrow money to go fund, to invest and build the cap, the, the infrastructure. We don't, we have 16 people and we operate in a very lean model and we're able to work with a variety of hosting partners. Uh, and you know, you could say in a very tight market while being vertically integrated, like a riot or core, you control your costs more. You also create rigidity in your business model. It's very hard to change kind of where you operate and how you operate. 
because you have all that sunk cost. Um, if in a market where the Bitcoin price is going up, you know, our model clearly is superior. Um, and we'll just, we'll have to see kind of, you know, which model plays out as being a better one. But the vast majority, I think there are only one or two miners that really operate using our model of the public ones. Hmm. Um, now, you know, part of the challenge is that, you know, Core, Riot, ourselves, we're kind of the top three of the publicly traded guys. And then you have kind of Argo, HUD-8, Hive, et cetera, and a bunch of people below that. So what you're going to see over the next 12 months is, you know, who continues to grow and who doesn't. And um, while I can't comment on Riot's or Core's growth plans because uh, I don't know them, I do know, you know, we're deploying, you know, 23x a hash of, of hash rate. With, we're effectively growing sixfold, you know, in these 12 months. Um, and because, you know, those miners are predominantly fully paid for at this point. So we're just tying up the hosting arrangements so we can deploy them as they get delivered. Whereas for Core Riot, they're still paying for infrastructure build out. Um, and so their requirements for their capital is uh, not just for miners, but it's for core infrastructure also. And some of those companies have debt that they need to service. And, um, while the price of Bitcoin has been down, they've had to liquidate Bitcoin to pay and, and you know, use for paying uh, for uh, debt servicing or for, you know, paying for their infrastructure build outs. Um, and, you know, this is all publicly available information mm. um, based on kind of announcements they've made. So I, I think it's the models are different. Um, I think there'll be a shakeout. There'll be a certain amount of consolidation of the smaller players. Uh, there are a lot of miners who invested in infrastructure and put deposits on machines who now can't complete the payments on those machines. Um, so they're, you know, that's why you're seeing mining rig prices dropping so low in the marketplace today. Um, and, you know, being a large volume buyer of miners, you know, we have bought most of our fleet um, using arrangements with the vendors where either we have price protection. So as the, if the price of mining rigs drops, then we get our, our price effectively drops, um, you know, and we get credited back for that or um you know we just bought at very low prices and so you know uh, if you look across our fleet um the average cost of our machines is quite low actually hmm. compared to the, uh, the the over market so it really it yeah, comes yeah. down to how you operate your business but you know i think more important question you look at the global hash rate growth you know biduda's forecast originally had 2022 ending somewhere in the 340 to 360 exahash which would have been an 80 percent increase over 2021 and now it looks like we'll be flat to kind of the end of 2021 um, this year, <clears throat> maybe 220. I mean, maybe 275. 2022, right? Higher. Yes, correct. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the number's substantially taken down from where the estimates were expected. Um, and then we'll have to see where 2023 goes. Um, but I think the growth in in hash rate is going to be slower than, you know, what people were estimating last year. And, and your model is specifically that you are, you, you said you own the hardware, but you have hosting providers that manage the hardware. Are there separate companies that you'll lease out the hardware to that then manage it? Or how, how exactly does that work? Well, think, think of it as a data center operator, right? Mm. We work with people who operate Bitcoin mining data centers. Got it. And so they tie up the power, they make the investment in the infrastructure, meaning the transformers, the containers, mm. the buildings, if you would. And then, you know, we contract with them to host our miners, and then they operate the miners on our behalf, or we will send people on site to do the kind of day-to-day -day operations as needed. But, um, you know, we're not, 
building sites ourselves. We're not, you know, contracting for power, um, buying transformers, doing all that build out stuff. And so what, what the key strategic goals of, of marathon, for instance, taking this model will be to find the locations and set up the contract agreements with the, both the local energy providers and the, uh, like the Bitcoin, uh, mining management companies. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, think of it as we're we're either partnering with a company that is doing that on their own. So they're contracting for power, they're building a data center for Bitcoin mining, and then you know they want a large uh, tenant, if you would, mm-hmm. uh, like us. So no different than a real estate developer is building a mall. They need an anchor tenant. We're the anchor tenant. Uh, so they're building a mall. They need retailers to come in and and you know essentially drive traffic and uh, and you know. Uh, make it a place where other people are going to want to be. Uh, a lot of times we'll go into sites as the only tenant uh, because we're so big. Uh, so for example, our site in Texas that's currently being finished, uh, you know, that'll be 280 megawatts. Um, you know, we'll have nearly 70,000 miners at that facility. Um, then there's an, another site that we're going to deploy another large number of miners to uh, as well. So it's, it's a business of kind of, um, specialization you're either really good at sourcing energy and building a data center and uh operating kind of your miners or you're really good at raising capital and deploying that capital in a smart way we focus really our efforts on return on assets mm-hmm. so our whole goal is to be the best uh custodian of our shareholders assets and generate the best return on those assets um as opposed to having a lot of real estate and a lot of data center assets. That's interesting. Because uh, you, know, you, you look at the, and this is maybe just because I, you know, I spent time in the private equity world. I spent mm-hmm. time in venture capital. I have this kind of return on assets mindset, but um, we just think it's a, it's a better model. Yeah. Yeah. And so does effectively, do you end up having more locations uh, where you have uh, more smaller locations or does it, does it play out where you're targeting certain types of power plants or electric or other types of energy providers or does it, is it completely agnostic to the, the, I guess what would be, what's a typical type of uh, energy provider that you would partner with like a landlord to your tenant example? Yeah. Great question. So, um, we ideally want to situate ourselves, uh, what's called behind the meter at a facility that, um, is uh, drawing uh, power from some renewable energy source. So, for example, the site in Texas is built on the grounds of a wind farm, and we're drawing energy uh, off the wind farm and then supplementing with grid energy when the wind's not blowing. And so, A, it's renewable. The wind is renewable, obviously. Um, And B, um, we have uh, the grid as a redundant backup, if you would. Um, That's kind of the ideal situation for us in some cases you know we'll sit just on the grid because um it was an attractive opportunity the power price was right and there was capacity sufficient for our needs but um as you look across kind of the spectrum of our hosting sites um you know there are small sites there are big sites they're located in different states you know we believe that you want to have diversity a lot of miners uh, you know, you can look at Riot, for example, um, you know, they will be 100% in Texas and be really uh, dependent on ERCOT, who's the, the, uh, the grid operator there, for their power and their power pricing and all that. Um, we believe that's risky. Yeah. You know, you get a storm like the one that happened, you know, a couple of winters ago, 
and you know you could be out of business for a while and you know we had that experience ourselves in a small way our facility in montana uh the the storm that took out part of yellowstone took out part of the power plant that oh wow our site in montana and so you know we've been down for a period of time and it's now being repaired and will be up soon again but you know it's those contingencies that you know if everything is in one location those are the risks you suffer so you know we're very focused on site diversity partner diversity and you know vendor diversity it's super interesting yeah i would think i've heard a lot of the counter narrative to the criticism that bitcoin miners get around energy usage you know just with it with this makes sense right it's a, it's a it's a concern that gets voiced in the media which is why use crypto why use a cryptocurrency that consume so much energy when you could use proof of stake or other consensus options. And it, it seems to me that a good uh, counter to that narrative is that you as a Bitcoin miner can develop your infrastructure in places that are underpopulated or are remote locations that wouldn't have any demand for them anyways. Like somebody was, I had some guest on about a year ago that I forget the name of the company, but they, oh, it was a, an investor in, in this business that, takes the excess natural gas burnoff in Texas and mm-hmm. uh, harvest that with these little, you know, Bitcoin mining rigs that sit on top of them. And yep. it makes perfect sense, right? They're, they're wasted. It's wasted energy. It's, there's no, yep. there's no other use for it currently today. And I mean, do you see that kind of being the, the competitive landscape as well, where you're just trying to target energy sources that are cheapest and they're effectively cheapest because there's no demand because they're off the grid or far away or some other reason. Yeah. So you have this concept of stranded energy. Um, So West Texas is a perfect example of this. So the grid was designed originally, the energy grid was designed to transport electricity from point A to point B. So where it's generated to where it's consumed, but it was really meant to load balance. So you build a lot of energy generation where you have customers and then you use the grid to load balance, meaning if you need some extra energy, you could take some from somebody else. Or if you have excess energy, you could give it to somebody else when they need it. Um, what ended up happening with the build out of renewable energy um, and the incentives around that, you know, wind energy, the wind was very you know, prevalent in West Texas. So a lot of energy companies went and built a lot of capacity. The problem is there isn't grid capacity to Mm. transport all that electricity. (laughs) And so you have a lot of stranded electricity. So people say, well, you know, Bitcoin miners are taking all this energy and it's not available to consumers. Well, that's not true because that energy can't be transported to the consumers. And if you want the energy generating company that operates the wind farm or the solar farm to invest in more renewable energy, you have to make it profitable for them somehow. They have to be able to sell that energy. And so, you know, we come in as a baseload customer, we consume energy at the point of power generation, so there's no transmission uh, issue. And then, uh, you know, we'll shut down our miners if the grid needs the energy. You know, we're absolutely happy to do that. And, you know, that's the way our most of our arrangements work, mm. that we can curtail our miners, you know, if the grid needs the energy. But what we do is we provide these energy companies with a baseload consumption that allows them to operate their businesses profitably. Because otherwise, um, they weren't selling their energy. And, you know, there's a unique foible, if you would, to the energy markets, which is um, the grid needs stable energy. And so it prioritizes based on stability. And, you know, uh, 
dependable energy generation. So the energy that primarily goes into the grid at the bottom layer, if you would, the foundational layer is nuclear because it runs 24-7, 365. Then comes coal. And you, know, you can't turn coal on and off very easily. So you run that consistently. Then you use natural gas, which you can turn on and off periodically as you need it. And last of all, you use uh, solar and wind energy. And why is that important? Well, grid demand is not constant during the day. Uh, you know, grid energy consumption is peak between 4 p.m. and 9 p.m. at night. Well, why? Well, people come home, they turn on their air conditioning or their heating, they're cooking, they're doing their laundry, etc. During the day, you know, we don't consume that much energy. And, you know, by the way, in this country, for the past two decades, we've consumed pretty much the same amount of energy day in and day out, and it maybe goes up by one or 2% a year. Wow, that's it, huh? So, yeah. So where's the incentive to build new energy? especially if that energy being renewable that's being built gets shut off first thing, right? Because if you're not in peak consumption period, they're not going to shut the nuclear off. They can't shut the coal off. They may shut the gas off, but they're going to definitely shut the solar and wind off. And so you're in this, you know, uh, it's this kind of um, uh, not paradox, but it's this challenge where, you know, okay, you want me to build more solar and wind. I need to sell it to somebody. And so that's really the role I think you, know, you see Bitcoin miners playing now. Granted, there are also hydro facilities in Appalachia that you know don't have a lot of customers, um, but hydro facilities are really expensive to build and operate. And um, I think what you are seeing, if you look at the kind of energy, uh, you know, analyst data, you know, uh, basically coal facilities are being shut down. Um, and, uh, you know, people are building a lot of solar and wind, but the problem comes down to, um, how do you get this dependable energy? Because, you know, wind in some places blows during the day and other places at night, Texas, it happens to be late afternoon and evening. Um, solar is only available from kind of nine to three, uh, during the day. And again, peak energy is four to 9 PM. So solar doesn't really help that. So until you have energy storage and batteries and ways to store energy, uh, it's going to be very hard to make all this renewable energy very profitable longer term without a customer like us yeah. to suck up that energy and use it. So yeah. you know, we fulfill a public service, if you would, in that regard. I like that. Now, if you look at you know proof of stake versus proof of work, and granted, we could do a whole podcast series of multiple episodes on that if you wanted to. Um, but I think you know, high level, proof of stake, especially the way it's showing to be operated, you know, there's a huge amount of concentration in proof of stake. And I don't know if you've followed the stuff going on in the Ethereum world now, but, you know, the, a number of key people in the Ethereum world are saying, you know, listen, we need to limit the amount of staking certain companies can do because they're getting too much concentration. And proof of stake is really not too different from the existing banking system where your bank vouches for the fact that your money's in your account. Mm-hmm. Right. In the proof of work world, nobody vouches for it because you control it mm-hmm. and it's in a wallet and you can see it on the blockchain. So consensus by proof of work uh, is a much superior system. Uh, I don't disagree with people in saying that, you know, the energy consumption of our industry is large. However, we are getting much more efficient at using that energy. Uh, and over time, I think uh, we're going to find that that energy um consumption uh, will not have a very big impact on consumers. And at the end of the day, the argument about the energy consumption is you're either talking about carbon emissions, and if you're using predominantly renewable energy, 
that's not an issue. Mm. Um, and so what's the argument? Well, you're taking energy away from consumers. Well, if you're only using stranded energy and you're using excess energy, because by the way, Bitcoin miners don't want to pay retail for it. Yeah, yeah. So we're not gonna we're not gonna take energy from consumers. So I think you know, there's been some misguided, you know, the media and press have kind of colored the industry with a a, a very uh, dark pencil, if you would. And uh, I think over time, people will realize that um, you know, you compare Bitcoin miners to financial institutions and financial institutions use much more energy than we do uh you know look at amazon look at um you know uh facebook google they all operate data centers that use huge amounts of electricity nobody's complaining about that yeah with lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think there's also the need for media companies to draw up a drama you know, make it like, Ooh, the, there's a good and bad guy out there. And like the, and and it may just be a progression more like an evolution uh, and it's simpler than what is described. And there's not as much of a debate. It's, it seems to me because you're not incentivized, like you said, to purchase retail energy costs. So you're always going to go to the places that are less desirable. And it does, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I certainly buy the viewpoint that you're effectively funding the early prototypes and the early development of renewable energies and remote sources. I want to ask you, what's the uh, current state of transmissibility? So if I have a massive solar farm in West Texas somewhere, or somewhere in the middle of the country with a lot of sun, mm-hmm. if, if I'm piping that 100 miles or 1,000 a, a miles, is there a pretty consistent um, energy loss or is that energy loss... I've heard of some technology using like hypercooled or supercooled energy wires. Is that technology improving or like what's the loss on a hundred per hundred miles or so? So you can only transmit um, high voltage about 600 miles. Mm -hmm. So that's your distance limit. So, you know, I, I can't generate electricity in West Texas and ship it to New York. Mm. Um, So, that's an issue uh of all our if you look at transmission losses in the u.s it's somewhere between four to fifteen percent of the energy generated is lost in transmission wow that high yeah and we generate four terawatts per hour of energy in this country roughly so take five percent of four terawatts and that is more gigawatts of energy than the whole bitcoin industry globally uses is just wasted in transmission Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm as you're saying and, and do you see that improving or that being or that's relatively a fixed constraint on the system so i, I think what you're going to see over time is uh, a shift to microgrids mm-hmm. so today we have a hub and spoke model you have a utility that sits with a power generating facility and then it ships energy out from there um, microgrids operate very differently uh, basically you take a community you put solar or wind in that community uh, it's of a scale that's small enough that battery storage is actually quite efficient uh, financially. And then you can put a little bit of Bitcoin mining attached to that to consume the excess energy they create. And that can help fund 
the deployment of that microgrid. And uh, in Southern California, there's a project being done now um, to build out microgrids where I think it's the either LA County or the city of LA, I forget which. Um, they essentially were choosing between do we fund a new gas plant for four and a half billion dollars or do we fund uh, microgrid development for four and a half billion dollars? And they opted to do the microgrid solution. So it'll be really interesting to see as that project gets built out how efficient it is because now you're consuming energy where it's generated. So there is no transmission. Mm. And now the need for the grid becomes what it used to be, which is simply to load balance. Hey, I need a little excess energy or I've got some excess energy I want to sell. It's not, I need all my energy to come through. So are you telling me that the California state government made the right decision on a... <laughs> it's not the state. I think it's, I think it's okay. the county or the city. County or city. Uh, do, you, do you generally have any criticism of either federal or, or maybe state, but uh, federal policies on renewable energy? It, it seems like we're in a hyper-aggressive and, from my perspective, not very sophisticated uh, analysis of the type of regulation that would improve climate change, which is the end goal. It, it seems to almost be this pseudo goal of, of like renewables are the goal at all costs as fast as possible. And I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering if, if we're making a misstep somewhere and I'm curious to hear your reaction on. So um, I'm going to answer this in kind of a little more roundabout way. Um, but I think the example is really relevant. So if you look at Germany, mm. look at Europe, um, the uh, environmentalists who, um, you know, obviously have considerable say in parliament in Germany and, and the EU, um, you know, essentially drove through um, the uh, decommissioning of nuclear power plants and coal plants yeah. and said, you know, let's run on gas. Well, now this Ukraine crisis happens and what's happening, Germany's turning back on all its coal plants and they're considering turning back on nuclear plants. Um, so if I were a regulator or a government official in the U.S. and I saw that example, I would say, hmm, what is the most reliable and safest form of energy that we have? Um, and that's nuclear. Um, so you could do things like SMRs, which are these small modular nuclear reactors. Now, nuclear is a challenge because on the one hand, you have spent fuel you have to deal with. Um, but the other problem is that vast majority of nuclear power plants built in the U.S. are these large central utility plants that take years and years to design, years and years to get licensed, and years and years to build, and then they're run over budget. They run way over budget. SMRs are modular, meaning they're cookie cutter. It's the exact mm -hmm. same reactor. It's a, basically a handful of containers, if you would, that are self-regulating. They don't need all this water systems to cool them. They generate, you know, typically less than 100 megawatts. So it's microgrid again. And, um, you know, if you think about safety, uh, you know, how many nuclear incidents has the U.S. Navy had? Very yeah, few, it's a good actually. point. And, and these are small nuclear modular nuclear reactors, and this is what SMRs are. Uh, and so I personally believe that if the government really wanted to solve the energy crisis, they would go nuclear, they would do two things. They would deploy SMRs where it's practical. You know, most people don't want a nuclear reactor in their backyard, but there are places where you could put these, um, where you could uh, substantially enhance the power generation uh, at a microgrid level. And then really focus on fusion energy. 
And, you know, we are getting close to feasibility on fusion. What fusion has as a benefit is there is no spent fuel issue, right? Fusion is like how the sun operates. It's essentially a flywheel effect um, based on, on helium gas and other things like that. But um, being done under pressure. But it's a very different model, but it is uh, the ideal energy source. And so if you're not going to go the nuclear route, and you want to go the renewable route, you need to have a way to store the energy. So we should be investing in energy storage technologies um, because it's one thing to store a few megawatts of energy. It's a totally different thing to store gigawatts of energy. And, you know, look at what they're doing in Hawaii today where, you know, they're trying to get the Hawaiian islands off of diesel, which is their primary um, fuel source for energy there. And, you know, they're deploying lots of solar with lots of batteries. It's very expensive. Mm to do that. And, you know, Hawaii has a small enough population that you can do it effectively, <coughs> but you can't do that across the nation today in the U S. And so you have to get your energy storage, uh, technologies and capabilities to a place where no matter what time of day you generate the electricity or its source, you can put it into a bank and store it and then use it later. And so I, I think it's this combination of Energy storage technology meets better renewable technology meets some form of nuclear technology. Yeah, meets a political appetite for it, which always seems to be the biggest problematic. Yes, right? and, and you know what's what's interesting is with what's going on in Europe today and this energy crisis. Listen, you know when gasoline or when oil is you know over a hundred dollars a barrel and the price is dropping, um, and natural gas is at you know very high prices and will drop. Um, but you know, now's the time to kind of get the regulators to say, you know what, um, we maybe need to look at an alternative mm. because, um, otherwise we're going to be, you know, unfortunately having to rely on coal and other fuel sources for quite some time. Yeah. It just seems to make so much sense. I mean, what are we now about 15%, 20% of energy in the U S is produced by nuclear. Like it's not trivial. I mean, it's not that we're starting. To de- it, yeah, but it's decreasing, decreasing. And are there? Do you know if there's any uh, current operational f- fusion plants in existence, or is that still experimental technology? No, the the Tokamak, which is the technology that's kind of state of the art today, um, you know, has been primarily developed by Japanese, Chinese, and, and U.S. and some Russian. Um, they're now getting to a place where they're able to create a sustained fusion reaction um, for a brief period of time and. You know, where before it was microseconds, now I think it's in the minutes you're measuring it. But you need to get into the days and years <laughs> scale. So we're still most probably about 10 years from a commercially viable fusion reactor yeah. versus experimental scientific experiment, which, you know, most probably in five years, um, you know, we'll have solved the science of this. Um, there's a huge amount of money going into it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a major issue. Um then there's also the alternative of generating power in space, right? Where you have infinite solar energy. Um, and it's just a question of transporting it to the earth. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought about that. Uh, whether <laughs> you'd have like a tether, like an umbilical cord uh, into outer space or yeah. whether it'd be beamed down or shipped down occasionally. Um, uh, most probably beamed down is the, you know, a, t- a tether I think is just, there's way too much risk with that. Yeah. Uh, just anybody who's a, f- who's uh study who's read the foundation series by yeah 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 knows tethers aren't a good thing (laughs) yeah i have read that uh and it i mean your point on nuclear powered submarines and the lack of disasters that have happened there at least that i've ever heard about just seems such a compelling 
example for how this can be a sustainable way to produce energy. Are we still riding on kind of mass fear from uh, Chernobyl and Fukushima? I mean, do, do, do you think there's a real legitimate concern? I, maybe I'm blind to it, but everyone I talk to seems to have a conviction about the safety of the technology if it were produced in a way that were standardized and regulated and um, done correctly. I I mean, what, what's your sense? Is that why things are not moving forward faster and we're, we're kind of decreasing energy usage by nuclear? Well, so, you know, government officials depend on being elected to hold office. Mm. And so they have to do things that their constituents yeah. believe in. And, um, you know, sometimes these hard decisions uh, go against the grain. Now, the first SMR that will be licensed, um, I believe, is in Wyoming. And I think it's scheduled to be operational within this decade. Mm. Um, so you can kind of see how long that takes. Yeah. Now, you could, in theory, um, set up SMRs as long as the federal government would uh, approve the license you know, I'm sure First Nation tribes would love to have SMRs on their reservations and generate power and sell it to the world. Um, that would be, you know, a great income source for them. Yeah. Um, because they don't suffer from the, you know, state and local issues. Uh, they're, self, uh, so- they're sovereign nations, right? <coughs> but um, I think you will see uh, SMRs start becoming deployed. Um, I think you'll also see fuel cell technology. Now, you know, the, the issue is most fuel cell systems run on hydrogen. Hydrogen's, you know, very difficult to transport. If you think natural gas is hard to mm-hmm. transport, hydrogen's much harder to transport. But I think we're starting to solve the hydrogen uh, transport problem by looking at essentially creating a solid form of hydrogen, uh, which uh, call it solid state hydrogen, which is uh, there's some technologies that have now been proven that allow you to kind of bind hydrogen molecules to materials so it becomes mm. stable in nature and you don't have to keep it in these pressure vessels, um, which can blow up and have Hindenburg events. Um, so I think you're going to start seeing hydrogen fuel cell technology becoming more prevalent as well. Now what you can do is you can take a solar plant or a wind plant and you can essentially electrolyze hydrogen. Uh, so you have green hydrogen as opposed to what's called brown hydrogen, which you do from natural gas. So you're still creating pollution when you do that. Um, and you can mix hydrogen and ammonia together to transport it uh, if you need to. Um, so I, I think there's a model where, uh, you know, over the next 10, 20 years, you're going to see large solar farms being built in places uh, where there are no consumers for that power, where they'll essentially have hydrogen being made. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I know in Saudi Arabia, the city of Neom, which is a modern city being conceptualized by the government, which will be all renewable, um, is going to have a lot of solar energy generating hydrogen, for example, and becoming, I think, you know, they want to become one of the largest exporters of hydrogen in the world. Hmm. So, you know, that's clearly, uh, you know, an opportunity as well. That's interesting. Did you, when you joined Marathon, did you dive into energy? I mean, do you think of what you're doing as becoming an expert in understanding energy production and trends and effectively allocating capital to invest in those places where energy is most efficient? Or how, how do you sort of think about it? Because you're such, you're riding right right on the on the spike between crypto and Bitcoin and energy production. It, how do you, th- <laughs> yeah, how do you think of what would make you successful? 
So, you know, obviously, you know, keeping tabs on energy markets, generally speaking, you know, there's kind of the, the short-term horizon, the medium horizon, and the long-term horizon, right? So um, the long-term helps uh, kind of indicate, um, you know, what we should be thinking about in the kind of five to 10-year distance. Um, medium term, it's really you're thinking more about a combination of regulatory and uh, just global energy markets type stuff. And short term, it's really more hosting capacity and where is there some stranded energy I can get a hold of. So, mm. you know, our planning horizons, if you think about it, are, you know, am I in a mode where I'm deploying a lot of miners and I'm focused on deployment, which is what we're doing right now. Um, and, you know, I'm keeping an eye on the medium term regulatory environment, the energy regulations, energy pricing markets, energy types. And then I'm also keeping an eye on the long-term outlook of, you know, where is there going to be um, really inexpensive energy that's reliable? And what should I be thinking about to position myself properly for that? Should I be thinking about investing in the energy type? Should I think about, you know, potentially partnering with an energy provider that's going to build that out? Um, I, you know, I personally believe, and I've been saying this for about a year, that you know, energy is the single biggest input cost to Bitcoin miners, and so it behooves Bitcoin miners to partner directly with energy companies, and eventually for energy companies maybe to just be, become Bitcoin miners. Mm. Because if you have stranded energy as an energy company, well, be your own customer and consume it, turn it into money. Mm-hmm. And if you can't sell it to a, co- a consumer, turn it into Bitcoin, which is the next best thing. Mm. Um, and I think you're going to start seeing more and more energy companies actually saying, you know, we'll take a percentage of our capacity and we'll mine Bitcoin with it. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed a guy who, uh, who took over a, they have three power plants in Pennsylvania and they are coal Mm -hmm. power plants. And apparently at the turn of a century, they're able to like cultivate this old (laughs) coal. And it was just a power plant that was, you know, taking all this 200 plus coal miners, uh, coal mines across the state. And they, mm-hmm. uh, they just take all this coal and burn it. And they bolted on some crypto Bitcoin miners and it worked. And uh, uh, interesting story. So I love that. I love the different types of stories that come up on Bitcoin mining because, you know, that's, that's going to be his thing, you know, being in Western Pennsylvania and having this coal mining plant. But then there's so many other different applications where you have stranded energy. Uh, which is really interesting to see. And how do you do that? Do, do you stay up on all the news? Do you have like a, an analyst on the team who sort of presents this news internally? Like tactically speaking, do you guys have meetings where you'll sort of map out the way that the energy usage is going or, or external agencies that help you think through this stuff? Yeah, so we, we have an advisory board um, where we have experts across a variety of specializations, mm-hmm. you know, semiconductor technology, ASICs, what's happening with Bitcoin ASICs, et cetera. Um, regulatory experts, um, we have energy experts that we rely on. And we're constantly talking to, um, you know, the energy markets. And, you know, what are you seeing in the way of pricing trends? You know, where where are there facilities that may be stranded? Um, you know, now, Marathon specifically focuses on ideally renewable energies where we're trying to source all our power from so um that kind of narrows our our window if you would or the lens that we look at things through um because we're trying to get away from anything that's kind of fossil fuel related because we just think it's better for the environment but um you you know you rely on a lot of experts to continually feed you information you have to read a lot um and uh you know 
we're obviously also dealing with the regulatory environment. So you're talking to a lot of people in Washington and at the state levels uh, regarding things to make sure that, uh, you know, you're being a good corporate citizen where you're locating your facilities and, you know, you're, you're a good energy citizen relative to the energy utilities that you're buying the energy from. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. Anything you want to throw out there? Any other uh, tidbits or things that you've uh, learned or have been interested in? Or otherwise, uh, if there's places on the internet that you write or you uh, tweet, anything you want to throw out personally? We'll have all the links to the company in the show notes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that I think um, what's interesting with you know markets is they're constantly in states of evolution. And uh, Bitcoin mining industry is in a state of evolution right now. And, you know, it's going through this kind of natural uh, and very healthy process of uh, evolving from a kind of wild, wild west where there was this great opportunity. Think of it as like the oil business at the turn of the last century, mm. right? Um, you know, um, it, it's a marketplace where the, the John D. Rockefellers of the world kind of made their fortunes. And uh, then it got regulated and, uh, you know, now it's a much larger industry, um, and operates, uh, you know, in a much more mature fashion. Um, so I think you're going to start seeing, you know, the, the rest of these industries go through that same, same spot, but, you know, we're super excited about what's going on, mm. uh, in the industry. We're, you know, very, uh, proud to be able to play a role in this industry and how it develops. And, you know, we're really looking forward to seeing how the crypto world and, and Bitcoin, uh, more specifically, uh, really help lift a bunch of people out of poverty who otherwise don't have an opportunity to have bank accounts and financial systems. And we're, we're glad that we're able to, you know, operate, uh, you know, a good portion of the Bitcoin network and provide security and transaction processes. Mm. Yeah. Well, congrats on the progress, Fred, and wish you guys the best. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for hopping on. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.